And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither that the man had sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of, of me might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me, and as long as it's day, night is coming, when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made the clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he also went away and washed and came back seeing. The Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents asked them, answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now see, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he shall speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, then he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He therefore answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Thanks, Jeanette. Good morning, everybody. We're going to be in John chapter 9 today, as Jeanette just read for us. Did you know that in the Old Testament, there's not a single blind person healed? There's a lot of people healed in the Old Testament, but no blind people. And in the New Testament, Jesus heals more blind people than any other illness, which makes you wonder, what's with all these blind people? in Judea in the first century. Is there something going on in Judea where you have this concentration of blind people that Jesus is healing? I think another way to look at that is Jesus had a special love for healing the blind. And the reason you see so many blind people in the Gospels is because people who were blind knew that if they came to Jesus, they'd be able to see Blind people knew that if you go to him, your eyes will be opened. And what this story tells us is there are many kinds of blindness. Physical blindness, like this man who was born blind, which is easy for Jesus to cure. And spiritual blindness, which we encounter among the Pharisees and his neighbors and his parents, which is much harder for your eyes to be opened. So in this series, we're talking about who you say that Jesus is. And we're looking at these statements in the Gospel of John because Jesus tells us who he is. Seven times in the Gospel of John, he says, I am, fill in the blank, I am, last week, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. 
And the funny thing about it is, he says, I am the bread of life. And of course, we want to know, what do you do with that? What do you do with him saying, I'm the bread of life? And our impulse is to say, he's the bread of life. Believe that he's the bread of life. But that's not what he means. He means, I am the bread of life. And what do you do with bread? You eat. You partake. The goal of John's gospel isn't just that you would know something. He says, at the end of the gospel of John, he says, there are so many things that Jesus did, you could probably fill up the whole world with books about Jesus. And we have since the time that he was raised. But he said, and these things that I included have been written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. The point is not just that you would know about him. The point is that you would have life in him. So this morning, the point isn't just to say, he's the light of the world. Isn't that awesome? The point is to say, he's the light of the world, so see. See, have your eyes opened. See, the world is completely different when your eyes are open to who Jesus is and what he's doing. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's quote about the sun. He says, I believe in Christianity, or I believe in Jesus, as I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The light of the world has dawned, and through him you see everything. Now we find out in John that this this healing happens at the end of the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. And, you know, in the Old Testament, they had all these feasts. And in fact, when you start reading these, you realize, okay, in the spring, they have a seven-day feast. In the summer, they have a seven-day feast. In the fall, they have like 10 days of feasting. And you're like, this would have been a great environment to work in because they have so many feasts where they don't work that they only work a small portion of the year. And part of that is the rhythm of these feasts is to remind them who they are, what God has done, what he's currently doing, and what they're waiting for. And the Feast of Booths is really an interesting feast. Everybody gets out of their house, and they go and they live in these little shanties for a week. We had something like this when I was at OSU called Shackathon where all the fraternities and sororities would live on library lawn in these intricately pasted together two-by-four shanties to raise money, I think, is what it was for. For the Israelites, it was to remember that they had been sojourners. They had, they had left Egypt. God had made them wander in the desert. They had lived in these temporary buildings, and now God has brought them to the promised land. And it was like a whole community reminder of, remember where we came from. Remember what happened to us. Remember what God has done for us. And one of the things that they did at the Feast of Booths is they went into the temple and they had these giant 70-foot-tall menorahs. And they had a ceremony called the lighting of the temple or the illumination of the temple where they would light these giant menorahs in the middle of the night and it would cast light across the entire temple. And because the temple was so big and it was on the top of a mountain, it would actually light up the whole city of Jerusalem. And on the last day of this feast in chapter 8, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Not just this kind of light that lights up this small area. I am a light that is so radiant that the entire world is lit because of me. It would have been such a stark picture when you've seen that ceremony, you wake up the next day and he says, that's nothing. I am the light of the entire world. 
So right after that, Jesus has a funny way of doing this. He doesn't just say, take my word for it. He's going to show them that he is the light of the world. And he's going to do that, if you're looking at your Bibles in chapter 9, by healing a man who was born blind. And if Jesus is the light of the world, that means that you can see things that were previously in darkness. And so as we go through this story, I just want to point out five things that we get to see because of Jesus. Five things that we can see now because of Jesus. The first one is we can see the salvation of God. We can see the salvation of God in the picture of this blind man. So as he passed by, he saw a blind man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is the most interesting question of this story. Who sinned to make this happen? And we're not going to deal with it until the very end. But keep this in mind. Who, what caused this to happen. And Jesus says to them, this was not his sin or his parents, but that you might see the works of God. You might see the salvation of God. And so what he does is he tells them, I'm the light of the world. And then as he's doing that, he spits down on the ground and he begins to make a little bit of mud, a little bit of clay on the ground. And he scoops it up in his hands and he puts it on the guy's eyes. Okay, I don't know if he knew what Jesus was doing. I don't know if Jesus was saying what he was doing or if he just heard what he was doing. But can you imagine being the blind man when this starts happening? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've heard that this guy can heal the blind, but I didn't realize I was going to get spit-made mud put all over my face. And then Jesus says, go down to the pool of Siloam and wash, and you will be healed. You will be healed. John in his gospel does something that none of the other gospel writers do. So if you know, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the last gospel. John probably has the other gospels or at least knows about one of the other gospels. And he's doing something different with his gospel. In the first half of the book of John, it's called the book of signs. The book of signs. And that's because there are seven signs that Jesus does. Now, why didn't Jesus just use, or why didn't John just use the word miracle? That's what the other gospels do. They say Jesus did a miracle. He opened a guy's eyes who was blind. John doesn't say that. He doesn't use that word the same way. He says Jesus did a sign so that you might believe. This is the sixth sign that he does. The last one is when he raises somebody from the dead, which we're going to talk about on Easter. And these signs are to make sure that you don't mistake the physical miracle as the complete work of God. Actually, all we're supposed to do with these signs is say, this is pointing to something so much deeper. They had a way of arguing in the first century where you would go from the lesser to the greater. And they would say, you know, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus would say, well, to prove to you that I can do that, take up your mat and walk. To prove to you that I can open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind, Take this mud, go wash, and your eyes will be open. This sign is to show us that he really can do what he says he can do. And in fact, it's so easy for him to open the eyes of the blind. Imagine what he can do with the eyes of your heart. So there's a sign here that we get to see the salvation of God. Now, I've got to show you this connection. This is so cool. Why does he make mud? Did you wonder that? Why? He could have just snapped his fingers, or other places he just speaks, or other places they do like a little blinking and they open up and their eyes are open. Why does he do this? Because this is a sign of salvation. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 2 what God does to create man and woman? 
He bends down in the dirt, and he scoops up a little bit of mud, and he blows his spirit into it. And we were made from the dirt, from the mud. What Jesus is doing in this story is recreating this person. There's something about this person that's missing. And so how do you add that if you're God in the flesh? You take a little bit of dirt, and you put your spirit in it, and all of a sudden, he's complete. He's complete. He gets down in the mud to show that he can recreate you as a new creation. He can recreate you as somebody who sees, as somebody who has a relationship with him. This sign, the sign of God's salvation in these first verses is, it doesn't matter what you're missing, it doesn't matter what you have missed out on, it doesn't matter what your problem is or what you've been groping for that you cannot find in the world, God can bend down and as easily as he can make mud from the dirt and smear it on this man's eyes, he can recreate you to look like him. Now the second thing we see is the work of God. So we see the salvation of God. We also see the work of God. And this is where this story really starts to get interesting. This is one of the funnier stories in the Bible. And I didn't have Jeanette read the whole story because it's 41 verses long. But I would ask you guys this week, if you've got time, go through this dialogue because things take an interesting turn here. He goes back home after he's healed, and he goes to his neighbors, and his neighbors can't believe that this has happened. Okay, there are real people in the Bible. They're not all just Bible characters believing God. The neighbors say... Uh, isn't this the guy that used to sit and beg? And, they, and some said, it's him. And others said, no, no, I think he just looks like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. <laughs> and so they said, well, then how did your eyes get opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. And they said, well, where, where is he? And he says, I don't know. He didn't see him. He didn't know. He was blind. He's never seen the guy before. So the official position of his neighbors is, this is a lookalike. This is not him. We knew him. He's been born, you know, he's been around for a while. He's always blind. Now his eyes are open. I think he just looks like him. This is like when Mark Twain won third place at the Mark Twain lookalike contest. Like, uh, there's a resemblance, but I don't think so. And you know why? It's because they had a core belief. These people are blind to one of the realities we're trying to see here. They had a core belief that this stuff doesn't happen to people. Right? They had a core belief that was so strong, people who are born blind don't just wake up one day seeing. They were spiritually and physically doubting that this kind of stuff happened in their life. I mean, maybe elsewhere, maybe in other places, maybe in the past, but God doesn't really do this kind of stuff anymore. Or God doesn't really change lives like that. And I just want to take a, a minute here to point out, this is so pervasive in the church. This is so pervasive in the church. There's a lot of us who probably have looked at certain churches and said, yeah, they have life change, but it's just people who pretty much already had it together in the first place. Or it's just a certain group that God's really working in their life, but I'm not like them, so God won't work that way in my life. There's a lot of us who believe deep down that people actually don't really change. People can put an act on, they can keep up appearances for a while, but people really don't change. That's what these neighbors believed. A couple of months ago, we had one of my really good friends in here named Zach Shimmer, and he shared, he works now for the ministry called Hope is Alive, which is one of the greatest testaments to God changing lives I've ever seen. 
And I just want to give you a little snippet. His, his sermon is on our website and on our app. But I just want to give you a little snippet of his story. He came from a long line of people who had suffered from addiction. His dad, his dad's dad, they had all suffered from addiction. He grew up in a home where that's what he saw. That's what it was like to be a man, was to be addicted. And so sure enough, as he grew up, he was addicted. And he followed that same cycle. And one day, he hit rock bottom. His family gathered around, and they said, you have got to get help. And so he goes to treatment. He gets involved with Hope is Alive. And one of the things that Hope is Alive does, they're a sober living ministry, is they put people in communities where you see over and over and over and over again that people's lives change because of God. Because of Jesus working in their life, because of the Spirit recreating them, people's lives really change. And what they do is they reset that core belief that this couldn't happen to me. This couldn't happen in my community. This can't happen in my family. And it does, over and over and over and over again. And the coolest part about this is he ends up going through the program, he gets on staff with them, and a couple of months later, his dad starts the program. And now his dad works with them as a house manager, and they get to work together. God used a son to bring sobriety to the father, to break the cycle, break the chain, break the generations of addiction, because people's lives really do change. And just like Hope is Alive is a place where they are actively showing and retraining and recreating our vision for what's possible, that is the mission of the church, that this would be a place where you actually can change. Your life actually can be changed. If you follow Jesus, the Bible says, it's not optional, like if you're a super Christian, your life will change. If you follow Christ, your life will change. Because when you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You're not the old person anymore. Now, the old person still pokes through a little bit, but as you grow, it's pushing out the old. It's bringing up the new. The church is a place where lives change. And you know one of the things I love about our church? Laura and I are coming up on one year of being in this community. And one of the things I love the most about this church is this is a place where you can be convicted about your sin, you can be honest with the people around you, and you can be changed. I'll tell you what, from our elders in our meetings to our men's Bible studies to our women's Bible studies to our small group that we have during the week, this is a place where you can repent and work things out in your life, where you can walk with people, where you can talk with people, you can be healed here, you can get accountability here, you can get encouragement here. This is a place where it's safe to begin to see again. It's a place where if you see your sin accurately, as in something that will lead to your death, and you want to live eternally, you can walk with people here who will convince you that your life will change. We believe that God's changing lives in our church because we see it. Ask somebody. It's happening. And if you want your life to change and you're trusting in Christ, ask somebody. What, What Paul says in Ephesians is the best way to get rid of sin in your life is to shine light on it because the things that get in the light get healed. The third thing we see is the Savior from God. So the first two things, we see the salvation of God. We see what God's up to in the world. He's healing people. He's changing people's lives. But the third thing we get to see really clearly here is the Savior from God. 
Now, the Pharisees start to get involved here. And if you've ever read the New Testament, you realize, hasn't this guy been through enough? Why do we have to get the Pharisees involved in this? The Pharisees make everything worse in the Gospels. So not only are his neighbors having trouble believing, they're kind of a little bit unsure about what to make of this. So they go to the religious leaders of the time, and they say, we want you guys to help us here. And they brought to the Pharisees in verse 13 the man who had formerly been blind. Now, and John adds this little caveat here that makes a big impact on this story. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had made mud and opened his eyes. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees, they love rules. They just, I mean, they just love rules. So, for example, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. That's what's in the Old Testament. But that wasn't really good enough for them because what is work, really? And how do you know if you might have accidentally worked on the Sabbath? So what they did is they came up with 39 categories of things that you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. So, for example, you're not supposed to harvest grain on the Sabbath. That would be work, so you're not allowed to do that. But somebody at one time thought, but what if you just accidentally took off the head of a piece of grain? That would kind of be like harvesting. That would be work. You're not allowed to do that. And then somebody said, but imagine like you're climbing a tree and you fall out of the tree and you knock a branch down that happened to have fruit on it. That would be harvesting. That would be working. No climbing trees on the Sabbath. I mean, these guys were fanatics about the law. And what Jesus exposes time and time again with the Pharisees is even though they think they can see, even though they think they have these great insights into what God was doing in the law, they are blind. They're blind. They completely miss the heart of God. They completely miss the Savior of God. So when I was a youth pastor, one of the things we loved to do was we bought these inversion goggles, and we would play games with the students with these goggles on. So they invert everything. And it's really disorienting and makes you kind of nauseated when you put them on. But the the kids loved it. So whether it's trying to make a free throw or trying to do a relay or trying to do an egg toss, when you invert everybody's vision, it gets very hilarious to watch. And I was looking up stuff about this one day as we were doing these games. I was trying to make sure that it wasn't going to hurt anybody if we put these on and did these games. And I came across this research experiment where people put these goggles on a group, I think of college students who are probably being paid very little for this experiment, for a week. So they put these goggles on for a week. And what they figured out was, if you wear these for more than about two days, your brain can reorient the way that you see so that you can function with these goggles on. To the extent that these people were driving later. By day five, they were doing everything like normal. But here's what happened. After a week, they take these goggles off And all of a sudden, they can't see anymore. Their brain had gotten so adjusted to seeing inverted and rewiring and reshaping and resending to their brain what was happening that once they took them off, they couldn't see normally anymore. And when we come to a story like this, what you're realizing is once once you've been in sin for so long and you take the goggles off, it takes a little bit to learn to see again. When you come to Christ, one of the things he's doing is he's refashioning, reinverting your vision of the world. Because one of the things that sin does in our lives, if we're honest about it, is it inverts things in the world. We don't see God's love for what it is. We don't see our lives for what they are. We don't see our goals and our vision and our worship for what it is. We don't see heaven for what it is. We don't see others for who they are. Our vision is totally inverted. Instead of God being first, we're first. 
That's the fundamental shift. And when you come to Christ, what he does is he begins to re-invert your eyes, but it takes a little bit to start to see again. The Pharisees have inverted vision. They missed it. They saw the scriptures, but they saw it backwards. They thought they were the point of the scriptures. That God was like this cosmic general who wanted to have lines of frustrated troops who were all doing the same thing at the same time. But God was actually a father who wanted to get a family back together. Jesus confronts them by saying, God is is not like the law master that you are. He's like the father who's looking on the edge of his property for his son to come home. God is like a person who, when one sheep is lost, he goes and looks after and finds the sheep. The man who begins to see is catching on that the Pharisees have inverted vision and his vision is starting to be made whole again. But listen to this dialogue that they have with him. So the Pharisees, who, who are very upset about the fact that Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath, because this would be considered work, um, he, they ask him again, okay, how exactly did, did he do this? And he says, well, I put mud in my eyes. They're like, that's work, can't do that. I wash, that's work, can't do that, and now I see. So they said, well, <clears throat> this man must not be from God because he clearly doesn't keep the Sabbath. He clearly doesn't keep the Sabbath. And the other said, well, you know, how could a man who's so sinful do such amazing things? And this becomes a real quandary for them to the extent that they go and get his parents, Okay, so they haul in his parents in verse 18, and they don't believe that he's telling the truth, so they say, is this your son, and was he born blind? The parents say, and and how did this happen? The parents say, we know that is our son, we know he's born blind, but we cannot tell you anything else. Listen to what they say. His parents answer, "Uh, we don't know how he got his eyes opened. He can speak for himself. If we're going to tell you anything else, we're going to need a lawyer present. We're not going to be able to give you any more information. Now, why was this the case? Well, John tells us that at this point, the Pharisees were so upset at Jesus. Think about this kind of blindness. God sends a Messiah. He fulfills the Old Testament, and you say, can't be him. He's a sinner. He's working on the Sabbath. He doesn't wash his hands before he eats. This cannot be of God. And they had made a decree that if anyone confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, they are kicked out of the synagogues, kicked out of the temple, kicked out of the religious group, kicked out of church. We don't want you around anymore. Well, this this blind man's parents were terrified of being kicked out of the temple, being kicked out of the synagogue. Because if you were kicked out of the synagogue, you were religiously cut off from God. If you weren't allowed to worship with the other people, this isn't just like now where if you get kicked out, you just go to another place. This is like you were cut off from what God was doing. So these parents are like, unless, you know, if this isn't true and we double down on this, we will never again have access to God. We'll never again be able to be a part of what God is doing. So we're going to let him go out on the limb here and tell you what he needs to say. Now notice the boldness of this guy. This is what happens when you see the Savior. He says to them, my eyes were opened, and whether he's a sinner or not, and this is one of the best lines in the Bible, I have no idea, but all I know is I was blind, and now I see. All I know is I was blind, and now I see. I can't tell you all the theological backing around it. I can't tell you exactly how he did it physically. I don't know exactly who he is, but I can tell you this. I was blind, and now I see. What a powerful testimony. And it adds to it that his testimony means that he is going to be cut off 
from the religious institution. In fact, later in the narrative it says, they cast him out, verse 34. They, they get so frustrated with this guy, they cast him out, and he doesn't care at all. Why? Because he knows the Savior. He doesn't need that anymore. He's seen the Savior. In, verse, in, the, in the second half, he gets really snarky with them. And they're saying, okay, now let's go over this again. So they, they take the parents out. They bring the guy back in. They say, okay, tell us one more time how exactly this happened. And he, he kind of gets uppity with them. He says, I told you already. I mean, you want, you want to ask me so many times, do you guys want to be his disciples? Is that what's going on? You want to, do you want to be his disciples? And they say, we're disciples of Moses, okay? We don't need to follow this guy. And eventually they cast him out. And Jesus comes and finds him again and confirms this simple testimony. I was blind but now I see. That's it. That's what he sticks to over and over and over again. Stares down the most powerful religious people of his day because he's met somebody more important. Some of you probably know John Newton's story. He's the one that wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. That's where we think of, was blind, but now I see. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. And John Newton was a wretch. He was involved in the slave trade in England. He actually ran a ship where hundreds and hundreds of people were sold into slavery. And he becomes a Christian, and he starts to preach, and he starts to pastor, and he's so convicted of his own role in what he had done that he writes this hymn, not even as a hymn, just as an illustration in one of his sermons. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. At the end of John Newton's life, his memory started to fade. He lived to be an old man. His memory started to fade, and he went blind. And one of his former associates came to him and was talking, and he was asking him about his relationship with Christ. And at the end of his life, one of the last things he ever said, my memory is nearly gone, but two things I remember. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. What a testimony. Just a simple testimony. Two things I know. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. When you see the Savior, don't underestimate how powerful your simple testimony is. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. I didn't know God, now I know Him. That, those are some of the most powerful words in the universe. You know, I started thinking this week about all the people in the Bible who have these simple testimonies, simple but powerful testimonies. And I started to think, who's probably the least likely, least worthy, shortest testimony, shortest time following Christ, least excuse to get into heaven? I thought, it's got to be the thief on the cross. That guy doesn't have any reason to have made it. He doesn't have any reason to have been accepted by God. And I love, there's a pastor I love named Alistair Begg, and the way that he talks about this I think is so funny. He says, can you imagine what it was like when that guy got to heaven, the thief on the cross? The angel that was checking him in probably was looking at, he's like, okay, the last time we saw you, you were cursing the Savior on a cross. Did something happen in between? And he says, so how did you get here? And he's like, I don't know. And he says, well, I mean, do you at least know any doctrine? I mean, can you name, like, the books of the Bible or something? And he's like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. He's like, well, then how did you get here? And he's like, I don't know. All I know is the Savior on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. 
I mean, he probably took a few breaths. He didn't do anything amazing for God. He didn't start any Bible studies. He didn't do a Bible reading plan. He, all he did was take Jesus' word, today you'll be with me in paradise. How about that for a simple testimony? The man on the middle cross said, I could come. That's you. That's me. We didn't earn it any more than he did. But he says, anyone who trusts in me will live even though he dies. Anyone who trusts in me will never thirst again, will never be hungry again. Anyone who trusts in me will see because I'm the light of the world. The fourth thing I want you to see is the purpose of God. In verse 35, they're arguing about this healing again. And I want to take you back to the very beginning of this story. His disciples are passing by and they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I would encourage you not to laugh at this question because you and I probably ask this question multiple times a day. What did I do to deserve this? Why did this happen to me? Somebody gets sick in your family, something bad happens to you, something doesn't pan out the way that you want it to. We are so ingrained to think, I must have done something wrong and now God is punishing me. That's how we're wired to think. I must have done something. Somebody must have done something. God is punishing us. My sin led to this. I probably deserve it. What happened that I have to go through this circumstance? Now, watch what Jesus does. The disciples are interested in the cause of what happened. And Jesus immediately flips the perspective around to talk about the purpose of what happened. Who sinned, this man or his parents? What caused this? Jesus said, it's not about the cause. It's about the purpose. This happened so that, not because of, so that. This happened so that you could see the work of God. When Lazarus dies, they say, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. We wouldn't have had to go through this. And he said, your brother died so that you might see the glory of God. It doesn't matter why or how chemically or physically Lazarus died. What matters is the fact that he died is about to show you the glory of God. The fact that this person was born blind is a tragedy, but it's a tragedy that has a purpose. And the purpose is because of his life, now you're going to see the glory of God. You're going to see the work of God. You're going to see the purposes of God. And I would say when you're asking yourself that question, what did I do to deserve this? Why did this happen? How, am I, how did I get in this situation? Your suffering has many causes, but it has one purpose, that you would see the glory and the work of God in your life. And you actually might never know what caused something you're going through. But we are promised you will always know the purpose. You will always know the purpose so that you would see God more clearly. So that your eyes would be open to the way the world really is, which is ending at the throne of God, worshiping Him, satisfied forever in Him. The purpose of every single thing that happens in your life is that you be reunited with your Father forever. And your life is one string, one event after another of purposes that God is realizing to bring you closer to him and to bring his children back home and to bring glory to him, to bring satisfaction to you, to bring eternal joy that can never be taken away. So what caused this is not as good a question as what is the purpose of this so that you might see the glory of God? What is the purpose of your life that you might see the glory and the purposes of God? And eventually that you will see him face to face. 
Here's the last thing. We get to see the love of God. We get to see the love of God. Turn to the very end of this chapter. Jesus comes. This is, there's, so much, there's so many stories in the, in the Gospels that give you a sense that Jesus is such a tender, compassionate person. Sometimes, in, uh, I think the Chosen did a pretty good job of this, but in a lot of the old ways that Jesus is portrayed, he's kind of a stoic distance, you know, speaking in parables, walking about six inches off the ground. He's not, he doesn't have a substance to him. And in the Gospels, he does all of these things that make you realize he must have been the most comforting, wonderful person to be around. So Jesus has already healed this guy. His work is done. He's got a lot of things to do, but what does he do? Okay, verse 35. Jesus heard that he'd been cast out of the temple. And he goes and finds him. Jesus goes and finds him. Again, why does Jesus go and find him? Well, because this guy never would have found Jesus. He just knows about him. He, he wouldn't recognize him. And he goes and Jesus finds him. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? This guy's like, who is he that I might believe in him? He's like, anything you say, I will follow. Anything you say, I will believe in. And Jesus says to him, you have seen him. Don't skip over this phrase. You have seen him. <laughs> this guy's been able to see for like 10 hours maybe. You've seen him. In fact, he's one of the only people that you've ever seen. You are looking him in the face right now. And this guy, this is a unique phrase. No one else in the Gospels does this. He says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He worshiped him. It's the love of God that brings us to worship him. It's not our sense of obligation. It's not just God's sense of justice, although that's worth worshiping. It's the love of God. It's the tenderness of God. It's the compassionate nature of God that we worship. So Jesus, at the beginning of the story, did something really strange. He, when he puts the mud on his face, he sends him down to the pool of Siloam. Now, the pool of Siloam is a long way from the temple. And he sends this guy out of the crowds in the temple courts all the way down. There's 900 steps down to the pool of Siloam. And the Pool of Siloam means sent. That's what John tells us. It means sent. He has been sent to the Pool of Siloam, and when he gets there, his eyes are opened. Now, you think to yourself, why would Jesus do that? Why would he send him down there, and his eyes are open all the way at the bottom? He needs to go all the way back up to the top to be back at the temple. Well, there's two reasons. Number one, because being a blind man, he was not allowed to participate in worship in the temple. He was unclean for his whole life. He couldn't participate. And in order to be clean, one of the things he needed to do was wash himself. And when people would come to the temple, the Pool of Siloam is on the far south end of where people would come up to Jerusalem to the temple. And when you got there, you were dirty from travel, you had dust all over you, you would wash yourself at this pool, this giant pool, so that you could begin to ascend up to the temple. And what Jesus is doing is he sends this guy down here so that he can go through what many, many of his friends and family had done every year, probably every month. They would go to the bottom, they would wash themselves, and they would ascend up to worship God in his temple. One of the reasons that Jesus sends him down there is so that he can be what he always wanted to be, which is a person who is ascending to the temple to worship God. The other thing is, when you're down at the Pool of Siloam and you look up, you could have seen the huge and gold-gilded, glorious temple on the mountain of God in front of you. I think, this is not in the text, but I think one of the reasons he sent him down there is so that the first thing he saw when he opened his eyes was God's temple. 
Now, Jesus comes and he confirms with him what it means to believe. His eyes have been opened. He's worshiping God for the first time. And notice that his worship immediately changes. He falls down and worships Christ because he's seen the love of God. I'm going to end with a story about Fanny Crosby. And this is just an illustration of what it means to re-see through the lens of God's love. If Jesus is the light of the world, what I want you to take away from this sermon is see. If you're following Jesus, see the world the way he does. See the world the way the Bible describes it. See the universe and your values and your goals and your worth and the purposes of God in your life the way that God sees them, the way that they are illuminated by Jesus Christ. Fanny Crosby, born in 1820, one of the greatest hymn writers to ever live. She wrote 8,000 hymns in her life. <laughs> a lot of hymns. She lived to be 95, though, so she had a long time. But she wrote 8,000 hymns. To God be the glory, blessed assurance are two of the hymns that she wrote that we sing all the time. But she was blind. She was born blind. And a preacher one time, you know how preachers can be, they always you know, ask the question that ends up, they put their foot in their mouth, and he says, Fanny, it is such a pity that the master did not give you sight, even though he blessed you with so many gifts. It's just really a shame. You are so gifted in so many ways, but if only he would have given you sight, that just would have been the icing on the cake. She responds, Do you know that if I had been able to make one petition at birth, it would have been that I was born blind? Because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. The first face I'll ever see will be his face. And you'll see his face. Open your eyes and see him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the gift of sight. Lord, that by you we see everything. That we don't have to see our lives the way that um, the world sees things. We don't have to see our lives the way that we used to see things. We see your purposes. We see your hand at work. We see your fingerprints everywhere. Father, help us to see this week that you are working in every corner of our lives. Father, in the sinful places, in the places where we think we are so devoted and we are so joyful to get to serve you, you're there. Father, help us to see the world the way you see it, that we would see people the way you see them as people that you love, people that you gave your life for. Help us to share our stories because we see that if we have you, we don't need anybody else's approval. Father, help us to see that uh, you are working all things for good. Father, help us to see the little glimpses of your face in our life as a preview of what it will be like when we, like Fanny Crosby, see you face to face forever. In Jesus' name we pray.